If you have your Bibles, please take them out and meet me in 1 Peter chapter 5. You may be old school like me and turning pages or new school, hip, and uh, going to take out your uh, electronic devices and clicking on not your Pokemon Go apps, but your Bible apps and meet me in 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're new with us today, uh, this is uh, week 15 in our study of the book of 1 Peter. It's our last week of doing that. We're going to close out our study on the book of 1 Peter. We've simply called it Exiles, Passing through without passing by, and God's going to say some very interesting, deep, and meaningful things to us this week as we finish our our series. The next Sunday, of course, with it being Christmas, we're going to look to uh, Jesus and his first coming, his advent, uh, as a means of encouragement, exhortation, and hope. But pick me up in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, Seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. Father, may the seed of your word fall on good ground. Save souls today. Encourage hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 8 again. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I want to talk this morning from the subject, how to deal with the devil. How to deal with the devil. It was C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters. If you've never read that book, I want to encourage you to do so. But he made this fascinating observation in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He says, when it comes to the devil and demons... Christians typically have one of two extreme reactions. On one extreme are those individuals who who give Satan too much credit, who look under every rock and find a demon, who everything wrong that's happening in their life is some kind of a demonic force 
as a pastor in all these years of pastoring, I've met people like this and they're well-intentioned but misled individuals. And they've sat in my office and they've said stuff to me like, pastor, I want you to pray for me because, you know, I'm just having difficulty right now. The, you know, the demonic forces are after me, just got fired from my job. And I do a little probing and ask some questions. And what you realize was, no, nah, that wasn't Satan. You, you showed up late like six days in a row and you was only supposed to take an hour lunch, but you take an hour and a half for lunch and you didn't hit your sales numbers because you was playing solitaire on your computer. I'm sure Satan's like, thanks for the credit dog, but that wasn't me. I ain't had nothing to do with that. So we got to be careful of that extreme where you have individuals who everything is a demonic spirit. Everything gets credited to Satan. And maybe that's some of us in this room right now. But C.S. Lewis likewise points out another extreme that is equally problematic. And that is, for so many Christians, in my experience, especially Christians in conservative circles, we don't give Satan and the demons any credit. Everything that goes wrong in our life is because of human means and human instrumentation. It's always someone else's fault. And the reason why this happens, it's because of somebody's attitude or somebody's actions. Well, you need to hear God's word to you. And that is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. I'm going to unpack that in just a few moments. But you need to hear when Paul says to the Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In other words, Paul says your ultimate enemy is not cloaked in human garb. That oftentimes our real enemy, our adversary, the devil, uses human agency in human flesh and blood as clothes to be able to meet out his assignment on our lives, and that is to destroy us. Hear me this morning. I want you to get this understanding, this truism. It's going to really liberate you and set you free, and that is one of the things I want you to understand is, it's a hard word, we cannot say that we fully believe in the scriptures, but doubt the presence and activity of Satan and the demons. You cannot say, I am fully convinced of the word of God, but doubt the presence, activity, agenda, and assignments of the enemy. You can't even read your Bible. You can't even get out of the first part of Genesis without being confronted with our real enemy, Satan. We see him slithering his way in Genesis chapter 3, questioning the very truth of God's word to the first family created. And because of that, now sin enters into the world. It was an assignment wrought by the enemy to wreak havoc on human nature. If you go, if you go to the book of Job, we see that God takes Satan seriously. Here is God chilling in heaven, hanging out with his angels, when one day Satan crashes the party and God looks at Satan and he says, Satan, where have you been? Satan says, I've been going to and fro, roaming throughout the whole earth, looking for someone to mess with. And then God recommends Job to Satan. Now, parenthetically, if I'm Job and I found out that God recommended me to Satan, I got an issue with that. Tell me, do I need to start living more mediocre? Do I need to start, you know, not being so holy? If being holy gets me recommended to Satan, I don't know about this holiness thing. Now what happens is Satan now says to God, yeah, yeah, I saw Job, but I couldn't get to him because you had a hedge of protection placed around him. 
Hear me, the devil can't do anything to you that God doesn't allow or approve of ahead of time. So God now moves the hedge of protection and what happens? Satan messes with Job's finances. Satan messes with Job's family. There's a spirit of death that is unleashed. And here's Job. He goes to a funeral with ten caskets, each casket holding one of his kids. Here, he messes with his health. He's covered from head to toe with boils, which means it is well within the realm of biblical orthodoxy and theology for me to be able to say, yes, there are some health crises that isn't just part of me living in this world. I I didn't get sick just because I didn't wear a sweater on this cold, frigid day, but there are some health crises that are demonic attacks. There are some financial crises that are demonic attacks. There are some family crises. The hell that's going on in some of our families could very well be the assignment and the agenda of the enemy to take you out. So we've got to understand him. Satan is described in the Bible as being the prince of the power of the air. I need you to get this in your spirit. Satan is described as being the prince, not the king. The prince of the power of the air. Watch it now. Which means that God has allowed Satan a modicum of authority and rule under God's rule. Satan is not... The holder of ultimate authority. Again, in order for him to get to Job, he had to get God's pre-approval. So he's the prince, not the king. Of the power of the air. That is, God has permitted to Satan a realm of rule that is subjected to God's ultimate rule. Now, I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 on the screen, because what Ephesians 6, 12 now points to is that Satan has set up an intricate, detailed organization, all for the punchline of taking out the people of God. Ephesians six twelve says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When Satan rises up against God in pride, gets kicked out of heaven, he takes a third of the fallen angels with him. These fallen angels have now been organized according to rulers and authorities and powers. To put it in modern day vernacular, here's what this means. That there are governors... Mayors, city commissioners, they stake out their territory. They are well organized. Now let's just call it what it is. Ain't none of us in this room have probably been directly attacked by Satan. We ain't that important. What Satan now does though is he outsources his attacks to his armor bearers, to his adjutants. To his assistance. Satan now seeks to find our weaknesses and to exploit them with the punchline of devouring us. This is what Peter says in our text. 
He says, I want you to be sober minded and to be watchful. Why? Because Satan, your adversary, has an agenda for your life. He wants to devour you. The Greek word for devour means to gulp. It was used of lions in how they ate their prey. Wake up, people of God. Satan doesn't just want to wound you. He doesn't just want to maim you. He doesn't just want to injure you. He has an assignment on your life and on my life, and that is to utterly destroy you. He wants to destroy you literally. He wants to get you out of here as soon as possible. He wants to destroy you psychologically. He wants to destroy you emotionally. He wants to destroy your finances. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy you morally. He wants to destroy your testimony. Satan has an agenda on your life, which means this. Satan is taking us seriously. And the best way for him to get us is for while he's taking us seriously, it's for us not to take him seriously. But as clear as Satan's agenda is, he need not be feared. For on a hill called Calvary some 2,000 years ago, God defeated the enemy. So you don't need to fear him, but you do need to take him seriously. He's after you. He has an assignment on your life. Now, you need to understand this. Satan is not omniscient, which means he's not all-knowing. But Satan knows your weaknesses. How does he know them? Because he's taking you seriously. He's watching you, studying you, taking notes. Just like a fisherman understands that certain bait work best with certain fish. Likewise, Satan understands that certain bait work well in that part of God's pond versus that part of God's pond. Satan is taking notes on you right now. He knows what your proclivities are. He knows what your weaknesses are. And once he's tapped into what your weakness is, he's going to do everything he can to exploit that weakness with the aim of utterly devouring us. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want you to understand that Satan is also messing with you. The Bible says that it is the God of this world that is seeking to blind your eyes. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're listening to this sermon, you're probably thinking I'm out to lunch. And that is exactly what the enemy wants you to think. He wants you to become so enamored with this life that you give no attention to the life to come. He wants you so fixated on this world, on the here and now, that you lose sight of laboring for the world to come that can only come through God's only son, Jesus Christ. But if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Satan likewise has an agenda for your life. He's studying you. He's seeking to exploit you. He understands that what may work well on me may not work well on somebody else. And so he's finding that out. So maybe he looks at one individual and he, he says, you know what I've noticed about this young lady, that she ties in her sense of self-esteem and self-worth to her body. She ties in her sense of self-esteem and self-worth, not into what the word of God says, but to how much she weighs. So let's unleash a spirit of eating disorder. Let's exploit that. Hopefully that'll lead to a premature death. 
This is how Satan attacks. He says to someone else, yeah, lust is their issue, but, but they don't just like any kind of woman. They like this certain kind of woman. So let's introduce that certain kind of woman and let's situate that woman in the cubicle right next to them. This is how he, he works. Or maybe we're studying this woman over here and she's got her own sense of self-worth tied into whether or not she's in a relationship. She's tied her sense of self-worth not to the man who died on the cross for her, but to human beings, men of flesh and blood. So let's unleash a spirit of promiscuity on her. Let us have her think that her sense of value is found when she's being held in the arms of another man. This is his assignment. This is his agenda. This is how he works. To other people, he may may unleash a spirit of success, worldly success. Hear me, God is for our success, but where success becomes demonic is when we get so fixated on success by the world standards that we don't see it in light of God's standards. And so let's bless this person with material possessions. Let's have them feast at the table of prosperity, so much so that they lose sight of what really matters. Satan's after us. So how do we deal with him? Peter tells us there's four ways to deal with the devil. The first way is seen in verse 6. Peter says that when the devil comes after you, here's what I want you to do. Humble yourselves, I love it, under the mighty hand of God. I love it. John chapter 4 says that God is spirit. So technically, God doesn't have a hand. Technically, God doesn't have legs. He doesn't have feet. So that when the Bible says that we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, what is Scripture getting to? This is what theologians call, hear it now, an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism, we get such words as anthropology from that, the study of mankind. And anthropomorphism is ascribing human characteristics to the infinite God. In other words, God is so big, God is so bad, God is so awesome that left to our own devices, we can't even begin to comprehend how big and bad and awesome God is. It was the the reformers who came up with the Latin theological phrase, finitum, capax, infinitum, that is, the flesh cannot comprehend the infinite. So in order for God to make sense to us, he's got to talk in baby talk. God has to talk in language that we can understand in order for us to understand any bit of who he is. So God instructs Peter. He says, Peter, I want you to tell these people that when Satan is attacking them, that they need to get to my mighty hand. Now, whenever you see the hand of God in the scriptures, here's what it simply means. It means the power of God. The power of God. For more on this, go to the Exodus event. 
And in the Exodus event, here's what we see happening. Little tiny Israel, which represents God's people. They were called by the Egyptians, the dusty ones. They were this small nation, this fledgling nation. They're now in bondage to the biggest, baddest nation, Egypt. God now shows up to Moses and he says to Moses, I'm going to deliver Israel from Egypt. Moses now says, how's that going to happen? Here's what God says. Here's how it's going to happen. By my righteous right hand. They don't have, you don't have power in and of yourself to deliver yourself. But if you can get under my righteous right hand, you will experience deliverance. Now we come to the New Testament and the New Testament people of God. The New Testament Israel is us, the church. Peter now pulls on this image and he says, believer, you need not fear the enemy because when the enemy comes after you, you have at your availability, not just the hand of God, but the mighty hand of God. Now this phrase freaks me out. It's just sufficient enough to say the hand of God. Now, Peter, if I was talking to some young folks, now Peter puts some stank on it. He, he's redundant to emphasize a point. He says, it's not just the hand of God, but the mighty hand of God. It's sort of like me saying, and, and please don't take this the wrong way, sort of like me saying the prideful Donald Trump. Well, you, you know, all I need to say is Donald Trump. And there you understand there's some pride there. Now, come on, you may have voted for him, but you know he's not the poster child for humility. We all have areas of improvement here, right? Uh, let me go to another illustration because some of y'all upset about that. But um, sort of like me saying the great Muhammad Ali. All I would have to say is Ali, and you know that he's got a measure of greatness. But for me to say the great Muhammad Ali, I, I am now being redundant to emphasize that aspect of who he is. Or it's me saying the leaping Michael Jordan. We all know his airness can really, can really jump. But for me to say the leaping Michael Jordan is to underscore that aspect. So when Peter says the mighty hand of God, he is underscoring God's power. So he's saying, child of God, don't fear the enemy. He's coming after you. And when he comes after you, you've got to get to the hand of God. But how do I get to the hand of God? Here's what Peter says. Humble yourselves. The word humble means to get low. So here's what happens. The enemy comes after me. He's attacking me. And I have a decision to make. The decision is, am I going to take him on, on my own, according to my own means? Or am I going to acknowledge my insufficiency, humble myself, and get to where God wants me to be? My mentor tells the story at the time he was working in his garage, but his granddaughter was out on the front yard playing. While she's out on the front yard playing, this little pesky dog, neighbor's dog, starts running after her, barking, just barking at, the, barking at his granddaughter. Well, the granddaughter freaks out. She starts screaming and crying, and she remembers her poppy, her grandfather, is in the garage working. So she takes off to her grandfather and jumps in her poppy's arms, jumps in his hands, right as this little dog was going to jump on her. But the little dog, when it sees the grandfather, stops dead in its tracks and is still barking. And the granddaughter is still freaked out. Poppy, Poppy, the dog, Poppy, Poppy, the dog, the dog, the dog. And Poppy says, I got you, babe. You're, 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 you're safe with me. 
And all of a sudden he says, my, my granddaughter starts looking down at the dog, then up at me, then looking down at the dog. Then he says, she looked up at me with tears in her eyes and then back down the dog and says, nah, 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 you can't get me. Hear me, the dog was still there. So what changed her from being fearful and frightened into being this courageous person? What changed her? She was safe in her father's arms. Friends, when the enemy rises up like a flood in order to devour you, get to your father's mighty right hand. Get to him in prayer. Get to him in scripture reading. And in your own way, you'll be able to look at the devil and say, nah, 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 nah. You can't get me because you're safe in your father's hands. Secondly, I want you to look at what he says in verse 8. He says, that's not enough. You have to humble yourself, get low, get to your father's mighty hand. But secondly, he says, be sober-minded. Sober-minded, sober-minded. Write down this word. The idea of the word sober-minded simply means perspective. Now, here's our problem. Not your problem, our problem. Ephesians 6 says that we need to be careful of the enemy because he will attack in the evil day. The evil day is that most opportune moment. And when he attacks, I don't know about you, problems never come by themselves to my house. They bring their aunties, their uncles, their cousins. They have a nice little family reunion right on our front doorsteps. Any witnesses here today about that? He says, when that happens, here's our temptation. Our temptation is that happens, and now we kind of cave inward and we go, oh, woe is me, and why is this happening to me? And I can't believe in this and that and the financial stuff that we're going through and the, 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 the problems with the friends and the family or all the headaches that's happening. This is, all this stuff is happening at one time. And what does Peter say? Get a hold of yourself. Get sober-minded. What does that mean? Perspective. Get outside of yourself. Let me take you back to Job. When you read the story of Job, here's the advantage we have as readers. We have the advantage that Job doesn't have. We know that these demonic attacks on Job ain't about Job. We know that Job is just the field by in which this cosmic collision is happening. That what's going on in Job's life has nothing to do with Job as much as it does about the glory of God. God is up to something bigger in your life than just your life. God is, and so here's what Peter's saying, get a perspective. Let me say it like this. A couple weeks ago, I sat down with, uh, with my friend, Pastor Steve Cliff Clifford over there at Westgate and wonderful believer. We had a wonderful lunch right over here and we're sitting down and we're discussing and talking and it's small talk at first. And then he goes, uh, pastor, how's it going? And, um, you know, I just kind of go there with him. And I said, man, the people of abundant life are amazing. It's just incredible. And man, wonderful stuff is happening. But I said, man, I'm just going to be honest with you. It just feels like me and our family, we are in a season of demonic attack. He starts laughing. Now, at this moment, I'm getting a little offended. Because I just told you about some demons and you laughing. Oh, you getting the bill for sure. I'm not paying for lunch to have you laugh at me about some demons. Well, he says, here's why I'm laughing. 
He says, it's the fine print of pastoring in the bay. Pastor Steve said to me, you talk to any pastor who's doing effective Christian discipleship ministry in the bay, and you will hear stories of demonic attack. Here's the punchline. When I left that lunch, what was reaffirmed in me was something I already knew. And that is, in a counterintuitive way, Satan's attacks on our lives are actually confirmation we're right where we need to be. Did you get that word? Some of us, when problems happen, the worst thing we can do is to tuck tail and run and figure this ain't where I'm supposed to be. Listen to me. Satan only attacks what he perceives to be a threat. If you ain't being attacked, chances are you ain't on the front line. But there's no such thing as being in a war on the front line and not getting shot at. The people who don't get shot at are those sitting on the bench behind some desk playing it safe. But if you are really taking your walk with God seriously... If you are really serious about sharing your faith and living for Jesus in a place called the bay, brace yourself. The enemy will come after you. But when he comes after you, you need to be sober minded and realize that he only comes after that in which he perceives to be a threat. So his attacks should be confirmation. I am right where I need to be doing what I should be doing. And that's why I'm being attacked. Now, thirdly, though, he says, here's how you deal with the devil. You humble yourself. You get a bigger perspective. You're sober minded. But thirdly, he says, be watchful. Watchful. Now, we don't need to do no big Greek study on this word. It's straightforward. Let me give you the sense of it. Just the other day, I was on a prayer walk uh, in my neighborhood and walking, enjoying sweet fellowship with the Lord, just praying and praising my Lord and Savior. When all of a sudden, off in the distance, I saw a pit bull that didn't have a fence around it and no leash on it. Let me tell you what happened. Everything stopped for me. We, 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 We put a pause on the prayer time and I got really alert to this pit bull. I'm watching it. I'm trying to figure out if that pit bull comes at me, what am I going to do and what my move is going to be? Everything was laser focused on that pit bull. That's exactly the sense of the word watchful. Be watchful. Be watchful. Be watchful. Not fearful. Be watchful. Be watchful. He's after you. Take him seriously. Now, it's at this point where I think in world history, if ever we did a service for the enemy, it happened during the medieval times when the painters depicted Satan as wearing a red jumpsuit, pitchfork in his hand, with horns coming out his head. I'm sure Satan said, thank you. Why? Because the Bible calls Satan an angel of light. Now, let me just put it this way. If I get on an airplane and I'm walking to my seat, And I noticed the woman sitting in the seat next to me has on a red jumpsuit, horns coming out her head, and a deep baritone voice in which she looks at me and says, red rum, red rum, red rum. I ain't sitting there. I ain't sitting there. I know that's the enemy. I'm out. But hear me, that's not how he rolls. He's an angel of light. 
which means he can take on and morph into various appearances of people that you feel safe with, of people you feel comfortable with, of people that you think you can trust, of people who buddy up to you, of people who, who get you to let your defenses down. And the whole thing is for the punchline of setting you up so he can take you out. Be watchful. Be discerning. Corey and I have a good friend, friend of ours uh, named Tim. And Tim was saying, you know, when he, when he, his first karate match, he's so excited and nervous at the same time, you know, his first karate match and he gets inside and he, you know, he's taking on his opponent and, you know, the, the match starts and they're, they're feeling each other out and they're sparred with each other. And he says, man, my, my opponent just, you know, a few seconds into the match just kind of kicks me lightly on my leg. And Tim's like, okay, but it's going to be easy. Right. So a few seconds later, his opponent kicks him again. Same kick, same leg. My buddy Tim's like, this is going to be a piece of cake. I'm going to take this guy out. A few seconds later, the guy fakes like he's going to kick at his leg. Tim, letting his guard down, goes to block. The guy hits him with an uppercut that knocks him out. Hear me, that's the enemy. That's the enemy. Sets you up, gets you comfortable, gets you comfortable, gets you comfortable, setting you up, setting you up, setting up the situation, setting up the situation. And the next thing you know, you're like, what happened? Hear me. I get this all the time. I sit and, I sit and do um, counseling with couples in my years of pastoral ministry. And there's scenarios like the woman saying, well, you know what? Here's what happened. Yeah, I cheated on my husband. But it's just years of him not filling up my emotional tank. Didn't really, really feel loved and cared for by him. Hung in there, hung in there, hung in there. Emotional tank gets depleted, 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 depleted. At the same time, I'm at work. New guy at work is starting to show me attention and love and affection. I wasn't getting at home. Next thing you know, I ended up in his bed. It was a setup. Setup. Absolute setup. Or said individual who is in this tight friendship, you and this guy are buddies and you're just sharing, you know, the deep, intricate details of your life. You're holding each other accountable. All of a sudden, this guy does something you don't like. The spirit of God says, you need to have a conversation, just, you know, clear the air or whatever. And Satan's like, no, you don't, you don't need to have that conversation. So you put it off, put it off, put it off. At the same time, you, there's, there's this emotional distance. And then you wake up one day and you realize, I don't have any close friends around me. I'm isolated. I'm out there on my own. And that's how Satan, who's a lion, lions never just roll up on a pack of wildebeest. They always look for that one, that straggler that's away from the pack. So here's what Satan says to you. It's a setup. I don't need people. People are too messy. Satan's saying that to some people right now. Went to Abundant Life years ago. All the mess went down. I don't need that. I can just podcast my favorite uh, speaker. Me, me and God can sit in front of a computer and I can just kind of roll through the scriptures. That's fine, but you can't podcast community. So wait, I get, get out there by myself. I don't need to be part of a growth group. I don't need to have people in my life. I'm out there by myself. Set up. Set up. Single people. Here you are. You just got out of this relationship. You did it God's way. Now the relationship broke up. Now Satan comes along and says, you see, you did it God's way. And what do you have to show for it? Nothing. Why don't you try it your way? It's a setup. It's a setup. It's a setup. What does Peter say? Be watchful. Be watchful. 
Corey and I even had to do this in our own relationship with one another. We were courting each other. I think I shared with this with you several weeks ago. We had to be watchful of the schemes of the enemy. And I love being able to look my kids in their eyes and say, I never slept with your mother prior to us saying I do on July 3rd, 1999. But we had to be watchful. It's 10 o'clock at night, sweetheart. You need to go home. I don't want to play another game of Monopoly. I want to do something else. I know that. See? Don't look at me like I'm weird. Don't look at me like I'm weird. You got to be watchful. 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 Finally, Peter says, here's how you deal with him. Resist him. Resist him, resist him, resist him, resist him. The idea here is put your sanctified foot down. Don't play games with him. Resist him. Look at James chapter 4, verse 7 with me on the screen. This is eerily similar to what Peter says. James writes, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Hear me. The devil is a bully. You know how my dad taught me to deal with bullies? I remember I was getting bullied in school. And forgive me because this is not godly advice. But... um, I was getting bullied in school, and I came home one day, and I was you know, telling my dad about the bully. He goes, oh, great. Bullies are God's means of sanctification in your life. I'm like 12 years old. What does sanctification mean? <laughs> and my father told me, again, this is not godly advice. He says, next time the guy messes with you, take your fist, you start with his head, and you drive it in the back of his brain. I said, well, thanks, Pastor. I, I, I don't know what verse that is. But you just gave me a word, Pastor. Appreciate you. But the message my father, and by the way, young people, don't, don't try that. But um, the message my father was trying to convey with me is, you don't give in to bullies. Giving in to bullies only facilitates more bullying. You've got to resist. And the good news is on the cross, Jesus Christ took his fist and drove it through the head of Satan. And you have got to access that same victory and power that is available to you. A defeated Christian is an oxymoron. God did not save you and go through all that he went through on the cross for you to get your behind whooped by the bully Satan. Resist him. Resist him. Resist him. How do we do that? Paul says it this way. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not of the flesh. In other words, Satan is spirit. You can't use fleshly means to combat him. You can't take a knife to the gunfight. You by your own, you are not big enough or bad enough or strong enough outside of Christ to handle Satan in your own means. For you to think you can take on Satan by yourself is like me saying, I'm going to hop in the ring against Mike Tyson. That ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so what do we need to do? Get in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Read it. He says, put on the whole armor of God. And one of the things we have to do is we have to, he says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I want you to listen to me here, saints. I praise God for Dr. Henry Cloud and John uh, Townsend and all these wonderful believers who've written all these wonderful books and books on boundaries and how do you handle in-laws and how do you get over porn addictions. Praise God for covenant eyes and all that stuff. And you may need to do that. But 
at the end of the day, what's going to take Satan out ain't covenant eyes. It's the word of God. And you've got to get into this word. You've got to know it for yourself. You've got to memorize it. Why? Because Jesus did it. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan came to Jesus, messed with him in the temptations of the wilderness, the temptations of Christ. What does Jesus do? Three times, it is written, it is written, it is written. Now, if Jesus pulled out scripture, how much more so do we? So if your thing is lust, that's your weakness. You need to be able to hit him with verses like Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3, which tells us, don't even let a hint of sexual immorality be named among you. If your temptation is your mouth, your weakness is gossip and slander and lies. You need to get in Psalm 141. You need to be able to hit them with it. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. You need to be able to hit him with these scriptures. And it, it means that I have to turn off the TV. Get in the word. Internalize that word. Watch it. It ain't good enough, though, to just have a sword. You have to pull it out when the enemy comes. Resist him. Resist him. Resist him. Now, let's go home on this. What happens to the believer who is attacked by the enemy, but you humble yourself, you get to God's mighty hand, you're sober-minded, you have the perspective, you're watchful, and you resist him. What happens? Look at verse 10 as we go home. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Oh, this is good. Let me go home on this. He says, here's what happens if you do it my way. If you lean on me to deal with the enemy, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to confirm you, I'm going to strengthen you, and I'm going to establish you. That word restore, it was used of nets that fishermen would fish with that would get torn up, and the process of them mending it, getting them back together, is the word restore. The word confirm means to make stronger, strengthen, to make stronger. To establish was used of the building of the house and the foundation process where they had to dig into hardened ground, break up rock, break up dirt. Two ideas here. Number one, they're all future. These are things that will happen once you get through your season of demonic attack. Number two, what all these words have in common is, is going through momentary suffering, but going through it the right way, and on the other end is strength. If you've ever lifted weights, you know how it works. If you lift weights for the first time, you're going to be sore the next day or two. Why? Because in the process of weight lifting, there is actually tears that happen in the connective tissue around your muscle. Weightlifting inflicts suffering on your body. But the reason why your muscles get bigger and stronger is in the process of mending those tears, they actually come out better than how they started. Here's what Peter is saying. Satan's going to come after you and there will be some slight tears, some dings you may even experience. 
But what Satan means to destroy you with, God's going to turn around and use to develop you with so that when you get through it, you'll be better than when you entered into it. Come here, Job. Here's what Job says. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as pure gold. Here's the point. God is so bad, he even uses Satan to accomplish his agenda in your life. God uses even demons to make his people better. That's the story of Job. Satan didn't know he got God. But Satan got used of God to make Job stronger. And I love it. Peter, when he gets finished saying, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, he takes a praise break. He says in verse 11, mm, mm, mm. to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 